Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Today we're going to continue down this road that we've been going on for, let's see, we're in September, right? So uh, we've been on this road for now nine months, walking through the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, It's a biography of Jesus written by one of his closest friends. And we're going to be in chapter nine. We're going to do the the second half of chapter nine. Last week we looked at um, Jesus healing a man who was born blind from birth. And we saw how we can respond when God does something miraculous like that. Today we're going we're gonna to pick up and see what the response was of the people around Jesus to this miracle. So have you ever heard the expression, I need something like I need a nail in the head? Well, there was a video that was made a few years ago about this very saying. Uh, It might be one of the cleverest that I've ever seen. It's a couple sitting on the couch, and the wife is exclaiming that she has this pressure, and that she feels it right here between her eyes, and that she's afraid that this pressure will never stop. And the husband points out that maybe it's the nail in her forehead. And immediately, however, he obviously is wrong, right? He just doesn't understand her. See, it's, she, to, to her, it's not about the nail. She doesn't want it to be fixed. She doesn't want him to do the obvious, easy thing, which would be taking the nail out of her forehead. She just wants him to empathize with her. She wants him to, to let her stay in this pain with the nail stuck in her head. And it seems it's easier for her to just have someone listen to her problems and listen to her complain than it is to actually have them fix the problem, and remove the nail. The video is uh, one, a point of contention in our house, however, because Jessica uh, often wants me just to listen to her problems instead of trying to fix them. And, and, and when I see something that can easily be remedied or fixed, I, I assume that I should just fix it. That's what, what I think men were kind of geared to do, is to fix things. I obviously am wrong. Uh, but now, in, in, in my wife's defense... Uh, sometimes people just need someone to listen to them. That's true. And sometimes being a good husband is, is doing less and just being with my wife more as she struggles. And sometimes you have to write those very words in a sermon so that you remember that that is sometimes what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to listen more than try to fix But friends, if, if your friend or your spouse or your child or your neighbor have a giant nail in their heads, please tell them. Conversely, if you have one in your own head, please be wise enough to take counsel that is offered and get someone to help you take it out. 
As we continue our study of John, we see a man who had an obvious need, like a nail in the head. He was born blind. And last week, we discussed the miracle of Jesus healing this man. How with some spit and dirt, Jesus physically played out his second I am statement. The statement where he said, I am the light of the world. The last truth that we discussed last week was this simple one that if you think you can see, you can't. Now, honestly, I kind of hedged my bets a little bit in presenting that truth, trusting that God would allow me another week to do this because I think that that truth really lands better in today's passage. I trusted that God would let me come back this week and kind of finish it out. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up. We'll be in the New Testament about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Let's dive into John chapter 9. We'll start in verse 13. Words will be on the screen if you don't have them. Verse 13 says this. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I, I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received sight. This seems to be the same old song and dance by the Pharisees. If you don't remember who the Pharisees are, the Pharisees were part of the political and religious elite of the day. They were kind of like the Supreme Court and the, the Senate kind of put into one. They, uh, they judged what was right and wrong and they made the laws to make sure that we... Uh, we were following what was right and wrong. But every time that Jesus would do something, these guys, the Pharisees, Jesus would do these miraculous signs, signs that would point to who he actually was. These Pharisees would try to discredit him in every way that they possibly could. They were doubly incensed that he had done something on the Sabbath. But as Jesus would continually show, he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and the religious elite became more and more angry because their way of thinking was being challenged. They felt like, God had, they felt like they had God all figured out. And then when Jesus came and it kind of explained that they had a lot of things wrong, they got really angry because it wasn't just an insult to their faith. It was an insult to their entire power structure. And this power structure gave them their position, gave them their power, gave them their wealth, gave them their influence. And when seemingly powerful people's power is threatened, they tend to lash out and be quite unreasonable, if we're honest. They'll do anything to retain that power. And here we see a bit of their absurdity. They've interviewed a guy who was blind. And now, by God's grace and his mercy and the hand of Jesus, he can see. The only difference was Jesus. A man can see, or sorry, can't see one day, and all of a sudden he can see, and he's telling you, yes, this is what happened, and the only difference is Jesus, but they, they couldn't accept that. They were none too thrilled with that answer. This 
kind of ad hoc mini Sanhedrin is, is really mad when they ask this man who they think Jesus is because he answers a prophet. And a prophet seems kind of like a safe bet. Jesus has been do, doing miracles all over the place. He's been teaching the Bible with wisdom that no man, especially an uneducated man like Jesus, could possess. And he's becoming quite popular. Like People are drawn to him and his teachings. And admittedly, some are also driven away. Like Calling Jesus a prophet seems like, yeah, you're nailing it, dude. Like You're knocking it out of the park. It's easy to see that. And while it may not seem like it's a big deal to call someone a prophet, because today we don't really have like a prophet walking around yelling at people. We don't have that office of the prophet fulfilled now. It held a ton of weight then. It's actually a really big deal. Let me explain why. In the Old Testament, there are three major, major titles or, or offices that were given to the men who would lead God's people, and sometimes women with the prophets. There were priests, the ones who could make perpetuation between the ritual sacrifice that it would take to forgive sin, and they would, they would be the ones that would stand in the gap for the people, both individually and corporately. Kings led the people as they followed God or chose to rebel. They would, so when, they, when kings would, would follow God, the people would follow God, and when the king would rebel, the people would rebel. So we've got priests, we've got kings, and then we've got prophets. Now prophets were the ones who would hear directly from God. He would, they would call the people back to repentance and they would show them the way back to God. But prophets were whole, who held to a, a pretty high standard. If you don't know what that standard is, it's found in a book called Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is literally, Deutero means second. So Deutero, the second uh, explaining of the law is what Deuteronomy means. It's because the people of Israel had received the law in Leviticus, then a whole generation of people had died because they had rejected God's plan to go into the promised land, and now that their children had come of age, they needed to be reminded of the law. And so in Deuteronomy, we see a lot of the same things in Leviticus, but in, in chapter 18, we specifically see, we see a couple things. We see uh, a messianic prophecy, which means we, we see Moses writing and telling the people of a prophet that would come, someone who we understand as Jesus. The other thing that we see is the, uh, the value by which we would judge, the standard by which we would judge a prophet. So Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. This is, that's the prophecy part. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, listen to this, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize the message is not... The, sorry, you may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So essentially, you get it wrong once, you die. You don't get a second chance. I'm really glad I'm not one that's going to call myself a prophet 
Because I would, if I speak in the name of God and I got it wrong one time, the biblical standard, that's it. And I will tell you that as a pastor who kind of fills the priest role-ish, I am so thankful that God is more gracious with me than that. Because, God, sometimes I get it wrong. I don't mean to, but when I stand up in this pulpit and I open God's word, I actually am saying that God is speaking through me. I take on that position, but I take it very seriously. The beauty of these three roles, prophet, priest, and king, is that Jesus came and fulfilled them all. He would be the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king. And he would promote us all into the priesthood. That we call that the, the priesthood of all believers. So we all get to stand in and do the work of the ministry. But some of us are given different gifts, and my gift happens to, happens to be pastor, which means that a lot more responsibility and weight falls on my shoulders. So I'm so thankful that I am not called a prophet, <laughs> and that God is, is not waiting for me to take his name and, and put it in my own mouth. I just hope that I'm saying what God is saying. So here the blind man is calling Jesus a prophet, so it was actually a really big deal like we just kind of explained. Even if it seemed like it was a no-brainer, it was a no-brainer that Jesus was a prophet. But the Pharisees had already made up their minds about Jesus. They had decided that Jesus was a sinner, and thus he was not worth their time. But friends, if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Sinners are always worth our time. Let me say that again. Sinners are always worth our time. I think that Jesus, if Jesus proves anything through the Gospel of John, he proves this. He proves that this is how he wanted us to live. Now, growing up in church, I feel like I was warned away from sinners. Did anyone else feel that way? Like, you know, if, if I was told in youth group that, like, uh, if I hung around people who sinned, they would pull me down into their sin. Like, I couldn't pull them up out of theirs, right? In college, uh, when I was a college student, I was told that, you know, hey, I know in college you want to find community, but you need to find Christian community because that's the only thing that you need. And both of those things have grains of truth in them. And so we often grab onto them because it's comfortable. It's comfortable to be around people that believe like you do. It's comfortable to be around other Christians. We love that. We tell ourselves that we need to be around other people who love Jesus, which is true. So I can be a better disciple, which I would say is only a quarter, maybe half true. See, being a better disciple is... A bit about not sinning, which is what we're trying to do, right? If we, if we hang around people that aren't sinning, maybe we won't sin as much. And I think being a better disciple is a little bit about that. But arguably, I think the bigger part of being a better disciple and the more important part is about making disciples. You see, Jesus' last instructions to us kind of points to this. His last instructions as he's going into heaven weren't, hey, go and don't sin anymore, I think he already actually took that for granted. He looked at his disciples and he said, hey, I've given you freedom from sin and death. I'm not, gonna, I'm not really concerned that much with sin anymore. I'm now concerned with you making disciples because sin is dead. 
You are free from sin. I have made you free. And as my Holy Spirit works in you, you will, you will stop sinning. You will start being more like me. And so let's go make disciples. I think Jesus called us to repentance. And once he called us to repentance, he wanted us to focus less on sin and more on him and his mission. Friends, we cannot accomplish God's will for our lives if we don't have time and space for sinners. If we're not inviting those who are far from God close to us, we are not living a holy life. Let me say that again. If we are not inviting those who are far from God close to us, we are not living a holy life because we're not living the life that Jesus did. The blind man had a need, and Jesus stopped, and he took the time to heal him. The Pharisees, on the other hand, had no time for Jesus, who they assumed was a sinner. And it seems that they had no time for this man who was healed either. They had so little time for him that they didn't even know him. They couldn't even tell if it actually was him who had been blind and was not blind anymore. They had so little time for people who they thought were sinners because they, had been, they could either be willfully ignorant of their own sin or they just were spiritually blind. So willful ignorance or spiritual blindness. You see, the disciples were this way. They were spiritually blind at times, asking Jesus, hey, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And Jesus illuminated them because they, Jesus invited them close to him. But the Pharisees, I think they were willfully ignorant. They assumed that because this man was blind, he was a sinner. And because he was a sinner, they didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't think sinners were worth their time. But Jesus sure did. And I am so thankful that he continues to think that sinners like me are worth his time. As a church, we're going to be shifting some strategies in this direction over the next few months. We don't want to just say that we're here for you when you need us. If you can find us, if you can find us in the building, if you're looking online or if you happen to be walking up and down the street like, hey, we're here. We don't want to be that church. We don't want to be the Pharisees who just assumed that they get dirty if they're around dirty sinners. Instead, they should have realized, as we should, that they were dirty, just pretending to be clean, blind to their own uncleanliness, and satisfied that their righteousness by their own hands was enough. They were unconcerned about the darkness that others lived in. Mostly because they didn't understand the darkness that they and that we live in. Friends, I don't want to be a place that just says, you can find us, we're here for you. I want to be a place that goes and seeks and saves that which was lost, like Jesus. So obviously because Jesus was a sinner and this guy that was in front of the Pharisees had to be lying they did what every good tattletale does. When you were little and you had a friend who wanted to tell on you, who'd they go tell? They went and told your mama, didn't they? 
This is kind of like if you guys are friends, uh, uh, fans of a show called The Big Bang Theory. There's a, a, a character named Sheldon, and Sheldon sometimes misbehaves. He goes a little crazy, gets a little wild, he's a little obstinate. So a character named Penny, the kind of female protagonist, she calls Sheldon's mama. And Sheldon's mama's from Texas. And Sheldon's mama puts Sheldon in his place. And so this is what the Pharisees are trying to do. They, they, they call this guy's mom and dad, thinking that they're going to catch him in this lie. Verse 19 says this. They asked them, is this your son, the one who was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son, that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he sees, and we don't know how he, who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, him being Jesus, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he is of age, ask of him. There are a few things that we can take away here. First, the man's parents, instead of being so happy that their son was healed, they are so terrified of being ostracized by the church that they won't even back up their son. Friends, if you're taking notes, write this down. We should be a people of celebration, not condemnation. Say that again. You should be, we should be a people of celebration and not condemnation. Far too long, not only have we not had time for sinners, but we've also not been a place where sinners are met with compassion. We have also not been a place that really celebrates the long road of sanctification. Sure, we celebrate salvation like crazy. We're pumped when someone puts their faith in Jesus. We will celebrate them as they get baptized. We will hoot and holler and cheer. We'll do all of that. We'll even pat our own selves on the back for all the work that we did to bring them to Jesus and for creating a space that that happened. And none of that is really bad. We should celebrate. Heaven does. But then things change. We expect a baby to start feeding themselves, start behaving, being quiet in church, digesting heavy meals of the Bible, and above all else, behaving. If you didn't catch that, I said that twice. We expect new Christians, the moment that they step over the line of faith, to act like us and to think like us and do all the things like us. And we create a situation like the Pharisees where people are afraid to be cast out if they don't fall in line. We as a church have created a hierarchy where new Christians better get in line and keep their heads down or the more holy people will get on to them. We're a place that's known for condemnation, not compassion. And that's not who Jesus was. That's not who Jesus invited us These parents have been, should have been ecstatically freaking out that their son, who was blind, now can see. And so should the Pharisees. Yo, how exciting this day should have been. This man was healed, and when he was healed, and now we're, these people were more concerned about how and when he was healed than the fact that he was healed. This is the same as us looking over the fence at other churches and other denominations and thinking or saying, well, are they really saved? Or, you know, 
they go to that church, so I'm not real sure. Or maybe it's the, well, you know those, insert whatever denomination or theology or ideology you don't really like. Well, it's just those, and they don't really get it. Instead of celebrating that people are healed, instead of celebrating that people are, are healed, we, we just want to get to the bottom of how it happened and why it wasn't us, why it was someone else that got to do it. But guys, that's not the way. If the church down the street is making disciples, celebrate. If the girl who is holding a Bible study out of her house is seeing people put their faith in Jesus, we should be praying for her. We should be supporting her. We should be celebrating her. Friends, listen to this truth. No matter where or how people get healed, celebrate. Whether it's here or down the street, whether it's in the U.S. or in the U.K., or in Australia, or in Vietnam, or in China, or in Venezuela, or in Kenya, we should celebrate. We are not, as the Pharisees were trying to be, the, the orthodoxy police. As much as the internet and heresy hunters would say that, and would have us believe that, we're not the ones that are called to hold people accountable that we have no relationship with. So if someone overseas is doing something a little different, if someone down the street is doing something a little different, if, ooh, if a woman is leading people to Christ, we should not be angry. We should not be looking at them and saying, I, you know, what are they doing? How can we make sure that this is right or orthodox? That's not our job. I promise you the Holy Spirit will do the job of convicting people. He always has. He always will. But we as a church, we can help the people that we know and that we're in community with to find truth. I have no problem with that. If there's something that I'm teaching that, that, that isn't right, that you have tested against Scripture and, and doesn't go with Scripture, let's talk about it. If there's something that a brother or sister is listening to or, or saying or doing that we don't think is right in our body, yeah, we correct them. But I, I don't get to watch some preacher online who's got thousands of people coming to Christ through his ministry and say, eh, well, I don't really like when he said this. No, he probably don't like you either. We should celebrate people coming to know Jesus. We shouldn't be arguing about how or when or where they did it. When prisoners give their life to Jesus, is it any less meaningful People on death row who we may not love or we may not think deserve to be free. We probably don't think they deserve to be in heaven if we don't think they deserve to be free on earth, right? That, that's kind of the thought process. But no matter who and no matter where, if they are putting their faith in Jesus, we need to celebrate. And this just isn't my opinion. This has actually been around, this idea has been around since the early church. Paul, who was the first church planner, writing to a church that he planted, had this, this to say to the church. In Philippians 1, he says this, To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. But what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Y'all, I can remember reading this verse a couple years ago, and it flooring me. Paul seemed to think that whether someone was doing it to promote themselves or not, it was still okay because the gospel was bigger than someone's ambition. The gospel would, would still be clear. The Holy Spirit would still do their work, even if someone was just doing it to get famous. That's what Paul says. That's the words of Philippians. If you don't believe me, get your Bible out, look at it, study it. Paul is saying even those people who weren't doing it the right way, it's still okay because the gospel is getting out and the gospel is more powerful than you or I. It's wild, y'all. We should celebrate when people get healed. Friends, I think we should be like Paul, not like the Pharisees. Now let's go on to what I think is the, the best bit of, of non-Jesus dialogue in one of the best, we'll say, non-Jesus dialogues in all of Scripture. Back in John 29, verse 24, or sorry, John 9, verse 24 says this. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, this man being Jesus. He answered, whether or not he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely out of sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? Then they, they threw him out. This man's response is so well put and, and so incredible and it's so humbling that for me to even try to add would be a feeble attempt. I'm just going to try to encourage you with some practical application from his response. We all know those people who try to steal the joy of our salvation. There are those people who want to remind us of who we used to be. Or tell us that we aren't any different. Or, or discredit the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. And I want you to remember what this man had to say. Remember that what Jesus has done for you is not up for debate. Only you know what he's done. You can tell exactly what, you can tell these people exactly what this man said in verse 25. One thing I do know, I was blind. And now I Friends, I want us to rest in that truth. That because of Jesus, you were once blind, you were once broken, you were once hurting, you were once an orphan without hope. 
But because Jesus felt that a sinner like you was worth his time, he healed you. He welcomed you in and he made you part of his family. This man knew this truth and so will we. We're going to end now with this with his response to this beautiful invitation of Jesus. Verse 35 says this. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and he went and found him. He asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped Friends, when we understand, when we understand that we were hurting and broken and lost and blind, uh, we were without hope, that we had nothing to bring to the table, that we were a sinner, who so many others that followed God would just have passed over. And we realize that Jesus stopped, just like he did for this blind man. He stopped and looked at you. He knew your name. He knew everything you had ever done. And he said, you're worth saving. And we realize that. And we realize that the people that live in this neighborhood, the 235,000 people within 15 minutes of this building that don't know him, when we realize that Jesus sees them the same way, we will get way more desperate about them knowing Jesus. We'll get way more desperate about them being healed. We'll get way more desperate when we understand how amazing the grace is that saved us.